Hi, my name is Aki, and this is The Revolution. This is episode seven. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Much love to all the sustainers who donate to the podcast every month. I love y'all. And to be honest, there was a point where I would not have been able to eat without some of that money. So I really appreciate y'all for supporting the podcast and my lifestyle. So yeah, let's do it. Today's episode is going to be about one of my favorite childhood movies. That is The Lion King. I want to do the theme song here, but I won't because I feel like it's a little offensive. I don't know why. I heard a white lady do it once. I'm like, oh, that's racist. I can't do that anymore. And so Lion King was directed by Roger Allers, who also wrote the Broadway play. Rob Minkoff, who directed Stuart Little. The entire development history, there's just so much going on here. I don't want to go into all the people who helped create it. But basically, Disney executives were like, we want to do something in Africa, but we just can't be about Africans, obviously. You know, God forbid. So they had to make it about animals um, because there's no people in Africa as, as far as Disney is concerned. And yeah. So it was originally called The King of the Kalahari. It was originally about baboons and lions and the war between them. Thank you, Michael, for telling me about how baboons in real life sometimes kidnap lion cubs and kill them. Um, so it was supposed to be like about real animal tensions, more documentary-like and a lot less funny. Um, definitely not a musical. Uh, but anyway, it was changed a bunch of times and then released June 15th, 1994. Four, created by Disney, the devil, and um, it takes place. Yeah. Fun fact. The reason that, you know, things don't become public domain as much as they should be, like a lot of copyright laws actually driven and created by Disney because they're trying to prevent Mickey Mouse from entering the public domain and being able to be used by tons of people. So I would have tons more material to play with here. You know, music could be better. Everything would be better if Disney would just let go of the copyright. But it won't. It won't because it's evil. It's a bad company, y'all. Um, so anyway, back to The Lion King. It takes primarily in some unknown part of Africa, I think, right? Or is it the Serengeti? But it's, it's, they call it the Pride Lands of Africa. It's a vast animal kingdom ruled over by lions who rule from, from Casterly Rock. Or uh, I'm just kidding. It's Pride Rock. Some people will get the joke. Um, so all sorts of animals can be found in the kingdom. You know, lions and cantaloupe antelope it's antelope isn't it yeah wow anyway tons of animals there and there's also the elephant graveyard which is where the hyenas seem to have been banished to it doesn't seem like they they're born there um if you're familiar with lion king lore it does seem like the hyenas used to hold some sort of power and could have potentially ruled pride rock too um but yeah for for the story they're in the elephant graveyard still Yeah. So the movie starts with the birth of Prince Simba, who's being introduced to the kingdom in a ceremony with his father, the king, Mufasa. And his royal advisor, Rafiki's holding little Simba there. Rafiki's some kind of monkey. I didn't, I did so much research for this episode. I didn't have time to research that. I have things to do. I have bills to pay, taxes even sometimes. And, you know, the animals are going nuts. They're like, yeah new king a new prince yeah he's gonna eat us one day we love him we love him we stand for the murder and uh king mufasa 
you know, explains to Simba later, like, you're going to, you're, you're, you're going to rule over this, Morty. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you know, Mufasa's like, all this is yours. One day, uh, you, you must be king. It's your destiny. And uh, Scar's, uh, you know, the, the king's brother, he's a darker skinned lion, which is probably racist. Disney and people try to explain it. It's still racist. Any explanation you have, it's still racist. It's grounded in racism. Deal with it. Uh, he's preparing to kill. He's he's getting ready to kill this hornbill bird, Zazu, which I did look that up. Um, and Zazu's another advisor to King Mufasa. Mufasa intervened. I was like, I'm powerful. You're not. And, you know, Scar is like, well, I'm super smart and you're not. You're, you're strong. And I wish it wasn't all about might, but might makes right, just like in real life in the capitalist and, you know, in the world more broadly, not just within capitalism, but it's all about power and the ability to utilize violence scar knows that the arguably scar's intelligence is balanced out by the fact that he's evil and kind of a a, a a meanie a true meanie so scar clearly wants to be king and he attempts to take out the heir prince simba by sending him to the elephant graveyard along with his crush slash love interest slash cousin cousin they're cousins that's weird um anala and Simba and Nala, they're ambushed by hyenas, only to be rescued by Mufasa. So Mufasa's like, Rah! and scares off the hyenas. Um, and Scar visits the hyenas after this and pulls a Hitler, Hitler Mussolini, Hitlerini, and convinces a bunch of this old, appear to be kind of like former soldiers, you know, uh, these hyenas who used to have some kind of power or used to like fight. Um, he convinces them to rise up and overthrow Mufasa. There's a whole montage. There's a goose stepping, a lot of Nazi symbolism and images and all that. But the song is pretty, it's pretty dope. I'm not trying to curse anymore or I'm trying not to curse anymore. Anyway, it's dope. Oh, be prepared. It's a great song. It's arguably one of the best, I think, in any Disney movie ever. And yeah. He plots to overthrow them and, you know, Scar goes back to the Pride Lands, tricks Simba again. Scar has a lot of intrigue points, if you're familiar with Crusader Kings. And, you know, convinces Simba to go basically get crushed by the stampede of wildebeest. Simba doesn't see it coming. The wildebeest are coming at him. Mufasa once again swoops into the action and saves Simba's life. Um, and Mufasa ends up caught up in this at the same time, the stampede and it's real tough and rough. And he tries to get out of it, starts scampering up this cliff when Scar at the top of the cliff, you know, tries to help Mufasa out and then is like, psych, and then throws uh, Mufasa into the wildebeest and kills him and says, long live the king, which I appreciate. You know, uh, Simba is sad. He's crying and all that at Mufasa's dead body. I'm saying this like really flippantly, but I, you know, I cry every time I watch this scene. Um, you know, it really hits me. So Simba's ashamed and Scar basically convinces Simba that it's his fault. He gets banished to the wildlands, into the woods out there. And eventually Simba meets uh, two animals, a, a warthog, or he's not a pig. Don't call him a pig. He's not a cop. Warthog named Pumbaa and a meerkat named Timon. And they basically get him to become a hippie. They're like, oh, bro, just relax, man. Embrace nihilism in the end. Also, nihilism, whatever. We're not going to talk about nihilism yet. 
But yeah, they get on to basically, you know, convince them life is meaningless, you know, just chill out, have a good time. I think that's the gist of it. Uh, whatever. Maybe I misunderstood. And Simba grows up here. He becomes a, a big lion here, a little big boy, you know. And one day Nala comes back, his cousin lover, and she convinces him to return to Pride Rock to take back his throne. But Simba's like, no, brah, I'm it's good on that. I'm just living my life. And then Ghost Dad shows up and was like, Simba, you must take your place within Pride Rock, I guess, bro. Like, seriously, just do it. Come on, please. And Simba's like, yeah, you're right. Sure. So he goes back to Pride Rock with Nala and his hippie friends also come along and they find that the kingdom has been devastated that there it's desolate, you know, there's no crops, no animals. It's terrible, apparently, you know. So Nala goes off to rally the lionesses and Simba goes to face off with Scar and they, they all meet up in near the throne room and the lions under Prince Simba, the hyenas under King Scar squaring off you know, Simba argues with Scar over who the rightful king is, which doesn't really seem relevant here at this point. They both established their legitimacy amongst their factions, and they both really know it's about power and the ability to kill each other at, at this moment. It's all that matters. A fire starts. It's raging all around them. They enter this amazing battle with the lions, the hyenas. Everyone's tearing each other apart. So good. I mean, as a kid, I was just like, oh, mm. This payoff is amazing. Society's really priming me for violence. God, I love it. I was a very thoughtful child. So Simba being the, the big old tough lion manages to corner Scar. And once Scar is cornered, Simba, you know, I was like, I'm going to get you. And Scar turns on the hyena. He's like, it's not me, Simba. It was the hyenas. They made me do it, friend, son, cousin, uh, uncle, nephew, nephew. And Simba ends up, you know, tossing Scar into a pit. The hyenas surround him. They feel betrayed by Scar. So they just cut him up. And it's probably one of the goriest type scenes. It's not real gore. You see shadows, but they kill him. They kill Scar. They're like, bah, you scapegoated us. So Scar is defeated. Everyone's all happy. Simba and Nala make out, you know, kissing cousins. And rain pours down, clears the fire away. The rain nourishes the pride lands and returns it to its former glory. The animals were joyous. They're like, yes, we're back. We're back on the menu, boys. And, and then the circle is completed at the end. Simba's newborn cub is presented to the masses and they rejoice. So the theory we are going to be talking about today is coups or coup d'etats and revolutionary coup d'etats. So coup d'etat is French, rough translation, a strike or blow to the state, a blow against the government. And to understand that, we need to talk about three different groups. So there are three groups we're going to be talking about here. Well, four if you include the masses. 
but the masses aren't important according to Disney movies usually. And I'm going to be borrowing a lot from University of Cambridge sociologist David Lane. So the first is the ruling elite. So if this is a car. Imagine the ruling elite as the people in the front seats, driver's seats of the car. These are the people that are currently in power and have control over the government. That there might be other political parties that exist that also might have a ton of power, but these are the people who have the actual ruling power. So arguably under Trump, it was the Republican Party as the ruling elite. And under Biden, the Democratic Party is the ruling elite. It's a little bit more complicated than that with our current democracy, but that that captures it. And the elites are people, they're in the car. They're essentially in the passenger seat of the car. So they have access to power. They have a lot of influence when it comes to the power and the governance of the system, but they don't have the direct control. Yes, they could like, you know, grab the steering wheel and swerve a little bit, but the ruling elite are the people in the driver's seat that have the current like control, the ability to move things within the government um, with, you know, with, with their whim. Uh, it's not something that they have to translate into various forms of power. And the counter elite, you could think of people essentially in the back seat, and the, they might have a lot of power within society, but they don't have direct access to governance, right? So this is like the military in the United States. It has a ton of power, but it doesn't have direct access to governance. It can't just pass bills um, or executive orders that will control and impact all aspects of society. So the counter elite can also be people who have a lot of money, a lot of access to political movements, labor movements, and control over them. But these people don't have direct government control. So I would include some wealthy people within the ruling elite because they have direct power over our political parties. But as we've seen in the past, not everyone that is wealthy has that immediate power. Like I would argue that the tech billionaires didn't always belong to the ruling elite or the elite. They were often counter elite before they were able to fully assert themselves and buy their own governors and Congress people. Now, most of the tech world is part of the ruling elite or elite. So a coup is when members of the elite or the counter elite seek to replace the ruling elite with themselves. And it's often done through a swift, quick action, a coup d'etat, a strike against the state. Something that is able to quickly topple the top of the pyramid, the regime, and replace it and be seen as legitimate as quickly as possible. They don't have time to mess around. So they want to establish themselves as legitimate. They do that often through violence, gaining support from the public or gaining support from other members of the various elite factions that exist. And often also through international support, often the United States, actually. And the goal of coups and the outcomes of coups don't often involve changing the actual political order or social order or economic order even. They are often just about replacing the people who are at the top, the ruling elite, 
so that these elites, the counter elite or elite, can become the new ruling elite and, you know, take the fully take the steering wheel and take control over the country and its governance. So to relate this to the pillars framework I introduced in the Mean Girls episode, the regime or government is upheld by pillars, different institutions, organizations that are filled with people that essentially allow the government to function and carry out its orders and tasks. So a coup is what happens when a faction within a pillar seizes the top of the pyramid and replaces it and becomes the top of the pyramid itself that's being upheld by the other pillars. And once they do that, they need to establish legitimacy often by killing the other pillars off, you know, bribing the pillars, you know, taking them over with physical strength. And sometimes they they do that before they topple the regime. And a media takeover is a big part of this. They usually want to take the media in one way or another so that they are seen as legitimate, so their stories are told to the masses. And I also want to talk about revolutionary coups. So revolutionary coups are similar to coups. They they want to, you know, it's a counter elite or an elite taking power from the ruling elite and replacing it. What makes a revolutionary coup is the participation of the masses. So the masses are often protesting, going on strike, engaging in action against the regime or government itself already. And they often become audiences to coups. A revolutionary coup is that. It's when the masses are out there in the streets protesting, and then a coup happens that is in line with the revolutionary demands. So to separate it from coups that happen, like in Egypt, where the military seized power in a way that wasn't actually in accord and or like, you know, lined up with the demands and the needs of the people and the masses in the streets. Revolutionary coups are those in which there is alignment with the the coup plotters and the masses that are already rising up. Whether that alignment of, you know, is real or not, and is this something that the military or the counter elite or and elite uh, whether or not they're, they're just like making it up for the sake of public support. That's a whole different story. But the idea here is that the masses are present and somewhat involved with the coup itself, though they don't carry it out. And this isn't a strategy that is usually accessible to the left in our modern world or in our current world, I guess. Every world is modern. What am I saying? Um it's played a useful role, you know, a part in, in revolutions in the past for the left and also the right. But it's not something that happens a lot anymore in liberal capitalist democracies that have existed for quite some time. So these are things that happen often with new democracies or to monarchies or states that don't have as deep of a separation between the military and civilian government. So we see a coup and a revolutionary coup happen in The Lion King. Scar is a member of the elite. He's not currently in power, but he has, he's pretty close to power. And it's arguably, you know, it's arguable that he's part of like the larger lion faction that controls the Pride Lands, you know. He, he's no warthog or whatever. Um, but he, he's not Mufasa. He doesn't actually control the Pride Lands. He's not the ruling elite. 
it's arguably that it's arguable that the ruling elite is Mufasa and maybe um, some of the other lions close to him and maybe Rafiki is included within that. But Scar is definitely not that. So Scar then goes on to work with a counter elite who aren't fully counter elite in the sense they don't have power within the Pride Lands, but they kind of they have power outside of the Pride Lands um, since they've been banished. But it feels as though they are they're still connected to the Pride Lands. So I see them as counter elites or I would potentially put them in a different category that um, David Lane, the, the theorist, well, I should name that. Yeah, David Lane is the theorist here um, for the coups, the revolutionary coups that I talked about. But I would introduce another category called like a, a burgeoning or a um, kind of like a an aspiring counter elite. So these are people who are like amassing power to one day have power within a society, like amassing wealth or guns, but haven't really gotten to the point where they truly have sway and power within society for one reason or another. So Scar organizes this uh, counter elite with his, you know, elite self takes power after the assassination of Mufasa and really steps into that power vacuum, which he's able to do partially because of, you know, the violence that he can use, but also because of the legitimacy. And that's an important part of coups where if Scar was just some random lion stumbling, you know, from across the savannah, you know, that he wouldn't have had the respect or the clout to organize the lionesses beneath him. You know, there probably would have been a war and a battle a lot earlier. And once Scar takes power, you know, it's clear he doesn't really change too much. The lionesses lose their elite status. Um, he becomes the new ruling elite. The hyenas become the elite beneath him. And the lionesses are kind of a counter elite, um, which then Simba later, you know, comes and works with them as a counter elite. So becomes a member of the counter elite himself. Yeah. The economic order seems the same. It does seem like the pride lands have become desolate and like messed up, but I want to actually, I want to say that that's because the animals are engaged in a form of civil disobedience. I think it makes more sense that then scar is like that incompetent or the hyenas are that hungry that they completely destabilize the entire ecosystem. I think that's a cute story and all for this, children's story and for environmentalists to like look at um it's weird once again there's there's not much to take from this movie if you think about it too hard really because it's like oh save the environment we must establish a monarchy or order but yeah it's like some weird eco-fascist stuff but yeah it's clear that scar just introduces like a more fascistic system uh than the previous one which feels like a transition from monarchy or maybe even liberal capitalism into fascism and I kind of see fascism as a more extreme version of monarchy and a more extreme version of liberal capitalism. If you look at fascism and liberal capitalism, anything liberal capitalists, you know, anything fascists have done, liberal capitalists have also done in one shape or, or form, often for the you know, same reasons, really. You know, things like genocide, concentration camps, slavery, scapegoating, minority groups, ethnic minority groups specifically for the sake of um, preserving profit and the capitalist class power over society. And then I would argue that Simba engages in a revolutionary coup in response. He's a member of the counter elite. He comes back with the lionesses, rallies them, and then seizes power. And it's clear that he has support 
from just from other people outside of the elite and counter elite and uh, ruling elite. It seems he has support from Simone and Pumbaa who fight with him, Rafiki, Zazu. And at the end, it seems that the animals are pretty giddy that they have their old master back. So with my, you know, my assumption that the the desolation of the Privelands was really an act of civil disobedience, which I believe and it works. It, please, come on. Come on. It's cool. It's a great idea. You love it. It's cool. And yeah, I, I think that it's a revolutionary coup uh, through that, that it's clear that he has mass support. The mass is already rising up against Scar. And I, to be honest, if Simba didn't come at any point, I do think there would have been uprising at a certain point. But yeah, so he engages in a revolutionary coup, reestablishes the old political order, which wasn't that different from what Scar had before, except it seems that the animals are happier under it. And, um, you know, returns the Pride Lands to a weird gross hereditary inbred monarchy thing with his lovely cousin Nala. And so the first example I want to talk about today is the Wilmington coup of 1898, which is a right-wing coup. Uh, so Wilmington is uh, was the largest city in North Carolina at that point. It had a majority black population. It was an economically prosperous uh, black city with a growing black middle class. So you should probably already know where this goes if you know anything about white people and how they feel about black people doing well. Um, you know, uh, black Republicans were getting elected into office across the state. They worked with the white populist party to create the fusion party and basically took over the state. They had 80% control about over the state legislature, um, took over the city of Wilmington. And so, yeah, a group of white people, nine wealthy white men called the secret nine, um, couldn't make that up. Um, basically became a counter elite. They had lost their power. They still had a bunch of like other power, but they couldn't really govern in the same way. Um, and so they wanted back into the elite and ruling elite status. So they combined forces with a bunch of rowdy ruffians that they were, you know, that they they themselves kind of hated. So uh, some like poor to like middle class white dudes who was who went around beating up uh, black people. Uh, they're called the Red Shirts. And they armed the red shirts and gave them a Gatling machine gun. And if you know your history, you know how you know big of a deal that is to have that in a in a city environment. Um, and on November 10th, the red shirts and the counter elite leaders of the Secret Nine went into the city of Wilmington, North Carolina, massacred hundreds of black people. We're still counting the bodies of them today, and forced the city government at gunpoint, including the police chief, uh, to resign. And then they quickly established a new white supremacist government. And, you know, this should have a good ending of like, oh, they were held accountable. And, you know, uh, the Republicans from all over the country came down to fight for black freedom. But no, the, these people that led the coup went on to become governors, congressmen, and some even became presidential cabinet members. So there was no accountability for this action, really. And that's because at the end of the day, the, the counter elite became the ruling elite. They established their power. They got their legitimacy um, and took over the media, which is a big part of it. And they even did that before the coup actually happened, which I think is an important point about media. Like Before they did anything, they uh, got famous speakers to go around giving speeches. 
And they took over newspapers and had them publish these anti-black articles being like, aren't you afraid of black supremacy, lad? I don't, my accents never make sense. Yeah, whatever. But yeah, Wilmington is horrible. You probably should have learned about it in school, but that's how deep white supremacy is. They don't teach us things like that in school. So now for a better example, a left-wing example of the coups, because I don't think coups are inherently bad, actually. Um, they're not great and aren't the preferred way. I think the left should seek power or take power in any given point. But there is a difference between a left-wing coup like this one and the right-wing one. So we're going to talk about the 1983 Upper Volta coup led by Thomas Ankara. So um, Upper Volta was a relatively new newly freed colony, like former colony, and received uh, uh, or got independence from France in 1960. You know, uh, let me phrase, uh, I, I speak a little bit of French myself. Oui, je m'appelle Arkin. Moi, je suis de toi, mon ami. Yeah, I have no friends. Yeah, and after its independence, um, Upper Volta saw a lot of military coups and it led to eventually a coup supported by Sankara and a left wing of the military. They worked with a moderate wing of the military, basically to seize power from the right wing of the military. So the right wing was the ruling elite, the left and moderate wings were elites since they still had some access to power and direct governance under the military junta. Um, and the moderates, once they were in power, were pretty bad. They were kind of just as bad as the right wing. <laughs> oh, my God. Who would have guessed? And so eventually the left wing of the military started getting all riled up. The people started getting riled up, too. Um, so there was labor strikes. Students went on strike. Um, working class organizations were going wild. Want to see the regime ended. So um, the left wing is, you know, riling that up. And Sakara is, you know, people love him. He's a war hero. He um, studied in military academies from like his teenage years and on. He's a Marxist theorist. People think he's brilliant. He speaks in favor of the people. And he's prime minister of the country at the time with the moderate government. Um, so the moderates are like, can't have that. So they arrest him, uh, make a big stink about removing him from prime ministership. And that just angers more and more people and the masses continue to rise up. And that also triggers the coup itself, in which the left wing of the military comes in, you know, they're the elite, um, so the ruling elite, that's the moderates. And uh, the left wing takes power through the coup, marches into the capital, seizes it for themselves, and also has the support of the people while they're doing it. And then they make uh, Thomas Sankara the president. And then Thomas um, and Sankara, who, know, who calls him Thomas? Um, Tommy, Tommy boy, um, renames the country uh, once he's in power, um, Burkina Faso, the land of the upright men, uh, to really symbolize like, yeah, we're proud. No, we're going to end corruption. We're going to do big things, big boy stuff here. So now the the left went from, you know, the elite to the ruling elite. And now the moderates joined the right with being, you know, counter elite who still had some power and influence in the country, but had no direct access to governance. And I'm I'm a huge fan of Thomas Sankara. Um, 
He kicked Western corporations out of the country, brought them under the control of Burkina Faso. It's like, these are our factories. These are our resources. These are our people working in them. Like, you know, this is ours and we ought to own it. And it should be collectively owned by the people. He funded um, schools, building new roads, hospital housing for people. He also established people's tribunals, which allowed working class people to judge capitalists and former government officials for their past crimes in the same way that they'd been judged, you know, in the past. So, um, yeah, Thomas Sikar did a lot. He also did a lot to support the status of women in Burkina Faso, which was an explicit goal of his in a 1987 speech um, in front of thousands of women. He said that the revolution was about upsetting the relations of authority between men and women and forcing each to rethink the nature of both. This task is formidable, but necessary. And that's what I love about Sankara. Like he, he saw the vision and like the world he wanted to create and he went for it. Um, he didn't make excuses about, you know, we had to like, you know, um, you know, fight in a way that will appease the capitalists at the same time. Um, and maybe that backfired in the end since he was assassinated by his own friend um, and comrade for at least one of the many reasons, but like, a lot of it seems to be focused on the fact that he had been pushing out and angering a lot of Western nations, which is a dangerous game to play, but it's often a necessary one. And we've seen you know, many countries who don't do that and then end up in endless cycles of poverty. And yeah, at that point, and still now, yeah, when Africans do seek that level of independence from the West, they are often met with violence, assassination, and, you know, uh, coups. So... Um, yeah, and, and in terms of supporting women, uh, to get more specific, he placed women in a lot of high ranking government positions. He banned genital mutilation, banned forced marriages and polygamy. He promoted contraception and he also encouraged men to play a larger role in the house and in the marketplace to experience the struggles of the women in their lives and get an understanding of what they were going through. But yeah, I just wanted to give that example um, to talk about left-wing coups and the, the potential uh, that they, they've had in the past. Um, and while coups, yeah, generally try to maintain the same order, that isn't always true. And you see it particularly with deeply ideological coups that are led by deeply ideological and disciplined people like Thomas Sankara. Apparently, a lot of the left wing of the military wasn't as disciplined as he was ideologically or committed to the vision of the future that, you know, that, that they spoke of. But deeply ideological people um, that lead coups can, you know, often fundamentally alter the structure of their societies, which I think is something that uh, David Lane misses a little bit uh, with his definitions, but exists. Yeah. You can see it with fascist coups and, you know, left-wing coups that it's possible. And, you know, this is it's hard to apply that to the United States in the same way. It is really worth noting that, you know, Sankara and others became leftists because they had, you know, Marxist professors who were able to teach at these universities or the military academies that they went to. So they're able to, you know, show, um, you know, not only a, a Western way of, of doing things and a capitalist way of doing things, but they learned as military cadets that, you know, that there was more than capitalism, more than monarchy, more than military coups. And 
that, you know, there was another world that could be built in which all people share resources equally, in which women were liberated, in which peasants were liberated, and in which, um, you know, people wouldn't, you know, dominate over each other. So it's really important, yeah, to name that, that this is something that they, they were educated on. Um, and something I, I doubt our military academies are teaching our, our cadets anything but like imperialism and the importance of murdering people. Um, and probably some other stuff too, but whatever. I, I don't think they're kicking Marxist theory or communist or socialist theory. And yeah, that's it, really. Boom. I do want to leave y'all with a little bit of homework. Oh God, I hate homework. It's nonsense. You should look into the research of it. But anyway, um, I think it's it's worth using this framework and trying to apply the frameworks I introduced today to what happened um, at the Capitol, the fascist riot, the fascist coup. Uh, maybe push is a, a better word for it. The German push. I don't know how to pronounce it, really. Um, and yeah, I think it's a, worth you analyzing that, maybe dropping it into the Facebook group. This is the revolution. Ms. Grokey's uh, alumni on Facebook, which is funny because Facebook really recently restricted me from making new groups uh, because they think I'm a threat. Oh no. Oh no. Facebook. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, I think y'all should do some thinking about that and also think about the relationships between the Republican party and their base when you're thinking about what we learned today. So yeah. Yeah. Thank y'all for your time and please, 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 please have a wonderful, wonderful revolution. Bye. The left really needs to stop or like spend less time arguing on Facebook and more time fully writing out their thoughts. We don't have to have an analysis immediately. We can sit with things. We can understand them. We can study them. So yeah, be cool. Also donate to my podcast. It's really nice. <laughs>